digital health consulting firm for young digital health companies uh, and the author of The Future of Digital Health. Wardell Advisors consults with digital health companies to address growth, fundraising, initiatives, strategic alternatives, competitive intelligence, and more. You can follow me at twitter.com slash Stephen Wardell. This show is being recorded and will be included in my podcast series called Digital Health Investor Talk. Subscribe to our podcast on Apple, Google, and Spotify. This is not investment advice, and we are not investment advisors. Our guest today is David Ewing Duncan. David is a journalist and entrepreneur, published in Wired, Vanity Fair, Scientific American. He's the author of When I'm 164, um, Talking to Robots and Experimental Man. You can follow him on twitter.com slash DuncanDE. Today's topic is the future of longevity tech. What are the breakthrough technologies? What's working and what can you do? First off, here's the format of the call. We'll chat about the news for about 40 minutes, and then we'll uh, focus on today's topic for another 30 or more minutes, and then we'll also begin taking questions and call-ins from the audience. In order for you to do more than just watch, you need to register for an account on call-in. To register, you can access call-in at callin.com or through the call-in social podcasting app uh, in your app store. The call-in platform works similarly to Twitter Spaces for a modern social audio experience. You can also email me uh, with questions at stephen at wardelladvisorsllc.com. Once you've registered, you can use the text chat or, or press the call-in button to join the discussion. So welcome, David. Please introduce yourself to our audience. Thank you, Stephen. I appreciate the invitation. Uh, we've known each other for a while, and I, I love what you do. Um, so I'm David Ewing Duncan. I'm a journalist and writer. Um, I've written several books, uh, including the one that Stephen mentioned. Um, I also kind of apropos to this conversation, uh, I did write a book called Experimental Man, where I went out and took basically every health test, healthcare test you could possibly take on the planet, uh, literally thousands of tests, starting, uh, it's hard to believe, 23 years ago when I was one of the first humans to be genetically sequenced just after the Human Genome Project and wrote a story in Wired about that. And the idea of all of this was to test drive all of these new technologies. I mean, some of them are like molecular DNA, that sort of thing, brain scans, a lot of scanning technologies. But also, you know, as time went on, the, the new digital technologies, some of which we'll talk about. And that kind of naturally led to longevity. That was becoming a very hot topic about 10 or 12 years ago. Um, I actually started writing about it very early. I covered some of the first breakthrough research in the late 90s, early 2000s um, that showed us that there might actually be a longevity science instead of just wishful thinking about extending lifespan. And then uh, written other books, articles. Um, I was in television for a while. I also have done some research. Uh, I was at UC Berkeley for a while, uh, started a couple companies. So I think that's probably enough. That's great. Uh, so now we'll move into the news section of the podcast. And here we're going to talk about about macro outlook. So uh, I have a contrarian thesis out there. I think that, so first of all, I think one of the things that the innovation community cares about a lot is when will the investor environment for digital health get better? Uh, and I think it's going to get better sooner rather than later. I think it'll get better in Q3, Q4. I think there's a conventional wisdom out there that it will be a year from Q3, Q4. 
that the environment for young companies that are raising venture dollars will get better. I don't know where you stand on that, but we'll go through some of the some of the issues and some of the some of the news on this. And so, uh, you know, I guess uh, one piece of news is that uh, earlier this week, Republicans and Democrats uh, agreed on a debt ceiling compromise, and they plan to vote on their compromise tonight. So all in all, this is this is really good news. I think it's within expectations that they would have played been deadline artists, but then come to a compromise agreement. It's good news for the innovation economy because a U.S. default would be bad news for the economy in general and the innovation economy. Um, so the Nasdaq is down a little bit today, but it was it was up yesterday. Um, and so anyway, I don't know if you have any thoughts on uh, you know the um, the possible vote uh, tonight and what it means for. Uh, especially for for innovators, for for young companies and, and the VCs who fund them. Yeah. Um, well, on that immediate question, I it's it's an interesting moment. I I think it will pass. Uh, there's, you know, I haven't heard of any attempts to sabotage. Um, I think you know the vast majority of the members of Congress, no matter what they say, understand that it would be disastrous to to default and, you know, lead us down that path. And the compromise was designed to have a, you know, bipartisan vote and we'll see, you know, that's, that's the real question. Um, You know, whether you'll get both parties, which given the time that we're, you know, that we're living in right now with all of this partisanship that, that actually is kind of amazing if that happens. So we'll see. Um, But um, you know, it's another question on whether we should continue to do this. Uh, it's brinkmanship. It's not really the way to handle things. And the markets were pretty quiet this time. I think we've gone through this so many times now, and we've all, we always seem to pull it out in the end. You know, previous debt debt ceiling crises, uh, the markets were going crazy by now, um, but they've they've been relatively calm. So we'll see. But that that's that immediate question. But um, so I. I didn't add that I I was a I did cover the financial economics side of biotech, you know, a few years back. I still follow it. I'm more now in the science and the kind of policy side of things. But I'm also trained as a historian. And I think one way to look at what's happening right now, pretty much happening in any period, is to follow what's happened in the past. And the reality is that biotech and and also health tech, uh, but especially anything that involves drugs, which we're not really talking about here, but in, it it our, our healthcare because the human body is still so unpredictable. It's not a product that we created; it's something created by nature. It's going to be volatile. And I do advise a lot of companies and, and investors. And um, the first thing I look look for is does somebody under you know, the, the, the person I'm talking to, the entity, understand that. So those of you out there that are in this space, uh, there's a little more predictability around health IT because, you know, these largely are machines that we build. But um, I always give that caveat that the human body is is unpredictable. And, you know, we, we always find out how much we don't know about it. So, you know, we have to always keep that in mind. Uh, on the other hand, it's getting very exciting. I think we're at an inflection point on a number of areas for better understanding the human body. So we've seen digital health, the digital health investment climate get much worse for uh, six quarters uh, as inflation went up out of control and as uh, the Fed raised rates specifically to fight inflation. Um, 
And now what we're finally seeing is we're seeing inflation still a problem, still higher than we'd like. I've seen numbers like five or six percent for the CPI, but no longer uh, out of control. And also the Fed announcing that it's stopping raising rates. I think that is a, a key element, because if you talk to VCs over the last six quarters, they have said that valuations are too uncertain, that they can't uh, lead rounds, they can't price rounds. Uh, valuations are too uncertain with the Fed possibly raising rates a quarter basis point, a half a quarter point, um, a half point uh, or more um, per meeting. Now the Fed is saying that it is stopping raising rates. Uh, and that in turn, when the Fed raises rates, the NASDAQ pulls in, valuation levels pull in. That implies that we've kind of reached a, we've reached a bottom in terms of valuations. Uh, a recession may change that, but we've reached a bottom and also that um, uh, that we've, we, we have uh, reduced that uncertainty point about the future. This is a catalyst, the knowledge that the Fed is stopping raising rates to reduce that uncertainty. That's why I am more optimistic than the mainstream about a return to more, more, gen more generous funding environment for digital health. But any thoughts about um, the Fed and inflation? Well, I think you're, you know, you're basically right about this. Again, though, I'm going to kind of pull out the more longer term. We, we tend to be sort of short term focused. And I think, you know, the wisest investors look at the longer game. And the, the longer game here is that we had an unprecedented, almost an unprecedented period of, of easy money for several years. And that was not going to last. In fact, a lot of people were surprised it lasted as long as it did. And it was partly because money was almost free. I mean, when you have interest rates so low. And I view what's happened. I know a lot of people don't like this, but it was more of a correction in a way to bring us back into a you know, potentially more normal economy. The, the reasons we did it were not normal at all. I mean, a pandemic, inflation. Um, but I think you... You know, again, I, I'm a journalist, so I analyze all this. I'm not looking at it as an investor. Um, and I think what you're going to be getting going forward here is what's happened in other, you know, not down times, but, you know, less exuberant times, let's put it that way, which is people will be smarter about what they invest in. And, you know, you're, you're, you need to look more closely at, at the fundamentals of a company and not just, you know, everybody else is investing in this space, so I better too, so I'll go out and find a company. Um, so, you know, and we've had many periods like this over, the, say, the last 50 years or so. Um, and I look upon this as a, for a smart investor, somebody that's willing to do their homework, this could be a really, you know, a great opportunity, partly because some of the overvalued companies are, are still great companies, but, you know, they're going to be, you know, the, 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 getting a stake in those companies is, is going to be less costly for an investor. And, you know, I, I, I you know, again, I, I, if, unless we have a recession, which still could happen, um, I think this is a good time to be smart about it. And, you know, we, we, I'm more interested in getting these innovations out there. And when you have all this volatility and I include the period that, and it's, you know, as you said, about six quarters ago, seven quarters ago, that was a crazy time because you were you're having a lot of money slosh around in places that it probably in a, in a down market would never, you know, those, would never go to those those companies, go, go to those areas. And now I, I want to see the good companies with the good products really shine. So that's what I'm looking forward to here. 
we're seeing a lot of, of sins of the last couple of years now being called uh, zero interest rate phenomenon. Uh, so Zuckerberg spending tens of billions a year on the metaverse with no milestones. Uh, he, even he can't, even he as a founder CEO can't continue to do that and that's gone. Uh, and so in digital health, we're, we're also uncovering, you know, some of those, uh, those sins of the, of the last few years as well in, in the, uh, you know, as the tide goes out. So, um, re recession fears. So we have, um, you know, uh, we have Jason Calacanis. He's a market observer. He's calling that we're in a Fed caused recession right now. But Lawrence Summers, you know, the, the former president of Harvard, former uh, Treasury Secretary, he comments a lot publicly. He says it's inevitable we're going to go into a recession, but we're not in one now. Uh, Fidelity puts us at the end of an expansion and close to the beginning of a contraction. And Fidelity, this is Fidelity's economists, and they think it'll be a shallow um, uh, uh, recession, which would be nice if it were. Um, so, uh, and uh, my view is we probably will go into a recession and this is bad for innovators. Uh, it's specifically bad because in digital health, innovators sell into the big budgets of the big enterprises of healthcare. They sell into the provider budget, the payer budget, the employer healthcare budget, the life science IT budget, uh, other budgets like that. Uh, and those budgets go weak uh, during, a, during a recession. Uh, and so it makes life, life harder on, on innovators. Um, so any thoughts about potentially going to, into a recession? Well, you know, it does depend on who you talk to. And it, we may already be in a soft recession. At least some people feel that way, you know, depending on industries. But I don't know. I mean, this is also a, a very funky economy right now. I mean, coming out of the, I mean, we had an unprecedented event with, you know, in modern times with the pandemic. And, you know, some of the indicators that we've been, you know, we, we've all come to depend on to understand where the economy was going over the last several decades haven't entirely played out the way even the Fed was. I mean, the inflation stayed up a lot longer than the Fed thought, thought it would. Or, you know, it's finally going down. But there's also, um, I think it was Paul Klugman in the New York Times wrote a really fascinating column a few months back about he was looking at that time, you know, this is like about a year ago, that he was comparing it more to the late 40s and early 50s after World War II, where the U.S. economy grew, you know, about tripled in size over the course of a, of a decade or so, because everything went up. Uh, you know, it was inflation, but, you know, if wages are keeping up with that, prices, um, you know, we, we became so terrified as a culture of inflation in the 70s when you had stagflation or you know, you had low unemployment and high inflation. Interest rates were crazy. Um, and, you know, we may be in a little bit of a combination of those two historical periods now because wages are higher. And, you know, some people are, are actually feeling like, you know, even though things are costing more, they're, they're making more. So that may be what's keeping us from going into a, a sharper recession. Um, but, you know, it's inevitable to slow down. I mean, we first of all, the U.S. government pumped trillions of dollars into the economy, and that's still working its way through. That's that's helping to fund these wages and keep things up. So anyway, not to get too macro here, but, um, you know, I think there's some forces at work that are unusual. So it's keeping us maybe treading water at this point. But, you know, again, I, I would love to emphasize that um, I think you have a lot of companies that, good companies that were funded during the gold rush, if we'll call it that, 
and they're still hanging in there. They've got funding. You know, some of them are beginning to run out of, you know, the, the money that the easier money that they raise. And I don't I hope that they are able to continue to be funded, maybe at a you know smaller scale. And I think investors just, you know, they need you 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 need to be in the long term now. You're not going to have an exit in five minutes, you know, like like people are beginning to expect in the in the go-go economy. You know, you gotta be patient. And health IT is faster than drugs in you know in, in bio. Drugs can drag on for years or even decades before you really you know, make your investment back, but you still need to be patient and you need to make sure that the companies are properly funded. You know, they have the right people working for them, all those fundamentals. Um, and you, you, you need to be careful about me too, as well. I mean, I've written a lot about this or used to when I was writing, you know, we don't need 50 companies doing, you know, diabetes, um, you know, monitoring apps. I mean, they're, they're just not going to all make it. And if I, you know, I, I wouldn't, once there's a, two or three sort of leaders that are emerging, I'd be careful about investing unless somebody has a really new and innovative idea or, or can price it, you know, differently or something like that. Um, but that that's also a danger too, uh, but less so when you've got money not as easy. So we'll move on to news of the week. So here, you know, digital health news remains relatively slow. Not a lot of funding, fundraising news, more layoffs than successes, uh, unfortunately. Um, no. So for our audience, does our audience have any news stories they'd like to call out for me and David to have us comment on? But the first story I want to I call out myself is Hiro, a maker of GPT-enabled conversational AI um, for providers in healthcare, announced a $20 million Series B funding from... Macquarie Capital, Dan Phillips is the partner there, um, backed also by Liberty Mutual Strategic Ventures um, and Black Opal Ventures. Um, uh, the company is based in New York. The CEO, that's Israel Crush, based in Tel Aviv. Um, so uh, the Macquarie Capital's partner, apparently based in Helsinki. So I'm, I'm looking for trends of sort of the bands getting back together and we're, and we're seeing a lot of classic U.S.-led digital health deals at the ABC stage led by top U.S. investors. And, that, and so what I see here is a couple things. First of all, this is obviously a, a GPT thematic uh, round, and you're seeing a lot of those at the seed stage. Here's a Series B stage. Um, but this is, you know, there's a little boom going on uh, in uh, in AI and generative AI and chat GPT type uh, AI out there. And here's evidence of it. Um, but this doesn't look to me like uh, the, the lead US VC investors are getting back in the game because, you know, you've got Macquarie. I, I can't remember the last time I saw a Macquarie lead, lead a digital health deal. And this is a U.S. company raising money with a lead European investor. Um, none of this looks like like mainstream digital health deals. Good for them for pulling this off. But it suggests that even for a company like this, it was somewhat hard to get. It suggests that the mainstream U.S. VCs have not are sit, still sitting on the bleachers, have not yet jumped back in the pool. Any thoughts on this deal? Um, I haven't really, I have to admit, I have, I, I'm not following small muscle movements or whatever the, the, the details of some, of some of these, these deals, but that's, that's a, they, they just recently raised. This was this past week. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I mean, 
I'm, I am seeing, you know, some restoration of rounds. I mean, rounds haven't stopped. Companies are still raising money. I just think it's harder. Yeah, it's pretty obviously just harder. Um, and, you know, I, I remember some old sagacious uh, VCs from the glory days back in the 70s, 80s, 90s. You know, they always talked to wheat, about the wheat and the chaff. I mean, when you have markets like this, there's still money out there, but, you know, you're separating the wheat from the chaff. You're look, you know, the, the good companies will still get um, some funding, you know, because, again, it's not a it's not really a recession. Even in recessions, you, you, you know, depending on how deep and bad they are um, and, you know, you still get some investment for the really good companies. And so. Yeah. And we, we saw an unprecedented amount of investment in the 2020 to 21 uh, time frame followed now by six plus quarters of of a pullback. And what what I've been seeing is when it comes to series C, D, crossover and IPO, that is down 95 to 100 uh, percent and the IPO window is closed. Um, when yeah. it comes to A and B, that's down about 75 percent. Um, so deals are still getting done. Uh, and when it comes to seed, that's down 25 percent. So there's a lot of activity in seed. Seed investors are different people, different pools of capital, different time frames, different priorities, uh, and they're, they're, not as, they're not so worried that the IPO window is closed or, or right now or whatever. Um, and so, uh, and within that seed investment that's, that's, that is um, strong, right, relatively strong right now, seeing a lot of interest in uh, AI, AI and healthcare. So that, that's what we're seeing. Um, so another deal. Um, Carom uh, Health. So this deal, this deal looked really interesting to me. This is a digital marketplace allowing employers to purchase bundled healthcare services, uh, uh, and uh, the CEO there is Satch Jane, and they raised 45 million in a Series B, and the round was led by Omer's Growth Equity. Uh, Teresa Lee there leading the deal um, with contributions from Tiger, Wildcat, and others. So very interesting. The employer budget still remains strong as, as compared to, say, the provider budget for IT, which is not which is weak right now. Uh, and uh, uh, and so this is starting to look like let, let's hope we see a lot more deals like this. This is starting to look like a classic digital health company that is raising a classic round. Omer's um, uh, and Teresa Lee growth equity. I'm not sure why the growth equity part of uh, Omer's. Um, invested in a Series B round. Um, usually, so it, it suggests the company is more mature than than the title Series B uh, otherwise implies. Um, but I'm I'm glad to see you know Homers being more active. They, they also have early stage ventures group as well. Um, and so you know I hope we see a lot more of these. This is this one starting to look like a classic digital health deal, except there's just one of them in the past week and not not many, which is what we used to see. Um, any thoughts on on Karim or any other uh, new stories you'd like to call out? Well, again, um, I'm not following these the, these closely. I, you know, I will say though that um, what I do follow, you know, the science, the the innovations, the things that are going on. I I, w I would think there's a lot of resistance to a, a you know a massive slowdown here. And there's still a lot of interest in companies because, as I mentioned earlier, there you know, there is an inflection point happening in multiple technologies. And, you know, it's exciting. You, you, you were talking about AI before. Everybody's talking about AI right now. I mean, the reason that AI is exciting in, in, in healthcare and in health sciences and health IT is because we've had a problem for, you know, many years, probably at least 20 or 30 years 
of having, we, we've had our, an ability to produce massive amounts of data and not really an ability to be able to understand what it means. So a, a lot of these companies and, and also to have proper search and figure it all out. I mean, uh, that's what's happening with ChatGPT or at least that technology. To me, it, you know, it's a, it's a new way to organize and search information. And it, 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 you know, we're all worried about, you know, all the, the dire potential implications, but in healthcare, it's exciting because, um, you know, we're finally, looks like we're getting a handle on all of this data. So, um, you know, I don't know the specifics of, of, you know, what's going on as you do, and I'm writing notes right now. I'm not where to invest in all of that, but um, <laughs> even though I'm not taking it as investment advice, because I, I know that you said that at the beginning. Um, but I will say that there is an underlying engine that's still driving this whole industry because we're at a moment of true inflection um, where, you know, biological testing, diagnosis, you know, predictive and preventive care, all of this genetics, molecular biology is, is intersecting and crashing into AI. And that's, you know, we can talk more about that because that, that's, that's where the excitement is, I think. And I, it's going to take a, a, a real downturn, I think, to quench that. It's the same thing that happened with gene editing a few years back. Um, and although I think it's it's more real than that, I mean we're still kind of struggling to make gene editing actually work as you know as products. So I think it's it's an important thing to remember as we're talking about specific companies, what really is driving um, this continued investment despite the economy. Great. And so now upcoming conferences. So I'm going to review some conferences, many reviews of conferences from the perspective of should the digital health leader, the CEO of digital health company, go to this conference. So and for our audience, by the way, if you are wondering whether you should go to any conferences coming up, just ask it in the chat and, and I'll, I'll try to give you a mini review. So the first is bio coming up June 5th to 8th in Boston. Tickets are three thousand five hundred dollars. Um, yes. I Well, if you sell into the the. Um, if you sell, if you're a digital health leader and you sell into the uh, tech budgets of the pharma commercial budget, the pharma clinical budget, the pharma infrastructure budget, I would go to Bio. Who can you meet? And then I would seek to do meetings at Bio. Who can you meet at Bio? You can meet um, the uh, the software buyers from the commercial and clinical sides at Bio. You can meet the pharma venture fund that and the partners that invest in IT in addition to investing in molecules. Um, you can meet other venture investors who are there who invest in IT. Um, and you can meet pharma innovation executives who are there. So those are the, that's the reason to go uh, to this conference. Um, and um, uh, they, so the next one is the- well, let, me, let me make a comment on I So bio used to be a bigger deal, at least in my world, you know, as a journalist and all of that. It used to be really breaking stories. I mean, I went religiously and went to, you know, follow it very closely. It has become more of a marketing meeting, but one area that you didn't mention is, um, and which a lot of investors don't even know much about, every country, every state, even cities have gigantic presence, a gigantic presence at this meeting from all over the world. And it's a very international feeling. And there's a surprising amount of investment money available, like, you know, by, by you know, trade ministries, say, you, in the UK or, you know, some other country or in different states. Especially in the state you are in, you may be unaware that you know until you walk up the you know the pavilion of wherever you are, you know New York State, or um, and you find out that there are actually 
there, there's money, there's grants, there's you know, development funds. So that's something to, to look into as well, along with alongside some of the other things you were talking about. That's great. And Dave asks, are the corporate venture funds there too, like Kaiser Permanente Ventures? Um, so, yeah. so I would not expect. I, I would expect Novartis Ventures, Sanofi Ventures, Merck Global Innovation Fund. I would expect those, uh, uh, you know, partners from those funds to be at Bio. Um, and you have, part of your riddle is if you're an IT person, if you're a software person, you're going there. Ninety-five percent of the people who are at Bio are molecule people, not bits people. And so you've got to find the people who to pair with who are bits people when you go there. The corporate venture fund partner who invests in tech, not just in the next molecule or the next. Yeah. And so um, now specifically Kaiser Permanente being a hospital venture fund, I would actually would not expect them to go to bio, but they may go to the next conference I'm going to talk about, which is the Digital Healthcare Innovation Fund, which is in Boston for one day that week. I happen to have read their attendee list recently, and Kaiser Permanente Ventures is not actually attending this year, but you will get venture funds and corporate venture funds at the Digital Healthcare Innovation Summit. Um, so the, the next one I'll bring up is the Digital Healthcare Innovation Summit. This is June 6th to 7th, the same time as BIO in Boston, same city as BIO. BIO is a huge conference. The Digital Healthcare Innovation Summit is a small conference, and it is specifically an investor conference. It's a rare beast, which is a, an independent investor conference. Most investor conferences are sponsored by investment banks. Um, Flair and Humana are the co-chairs this year. Tickets are $1,500. Bucks, um, uh, and uh, uh, this is a conference has a heavy representation of venture investors there. It's also in Boston, which has a large number of venture investors in Boston. And so if I were, you know, and, and this covers healthcare. So healthcare is not FDA risk stuff, but it's more selling into the payer and provider and maybe the employer healthcare budgets uh, is this conference covers. So uh, I would go, I would seek to meet with all the VCs who are attending. I would seek to meet with Boston VCs as well. Um, and and uh, let's see, and also, um, I've been to this conference for years. I like this conference. I like a small independent investor conference, which is a rare bird. Uh, and so uh, I partnered with the conference this year. And so for my audience, I have a discount code. It's investor talk 10 for a 10% discount. If you go, if you want to buy a ticket, I've, I've, I'm, I'm attending. Um, so uh, investor talk 10 is the discount code ticket. So in Boston, you've got the pharma side in the form of bio, and you've got the healthcare side, and a small investor conference in the form of the Digital Healthcare Innovation Summit. Um, any any other thoughts, um, David? No, and I mean, you know, it's not a, there are probably even other conferences, uh, you know, JP Morgan has fostered probably 30 little conferences going on around JP Morgan uh, in San Francisco in January, and less so around bio, but if you look around, in your particular field, they're, they're probably either at bio or around bio. There's going to be a lot of energy there. There also is a meeting, uh, which I didn't see on the list you sent me, which is, in my world, pretty important. It's Innovation Summit for Harvard Partners, um, which I I haven't looked up where it is. It's usually, it's, you know, probably 1,200, 1,500 people uh, around I, I don't know. I don't know what it costs, but um, less than bio. And it's a three day meeting. And it I've actually used to host the old version of that, which was started out in Cleveland Clinic uh, by their head of innovation in uh, their innovation fund named Chris Coburn. 
Chris came to Harvard a few years back and he moved the meeting to Boston. But it's if you want to find out it's it pretty heavily, you know, on, on the disease and biomedicine side. But there's much more and more every year you're seeing this intersection of of IT and, and biomedicine. And, you know, I don't want to overly actually even separate out the two because obviously they're two very different, you know, industries and investment strategies and all of that. But they're more and more merging all the time. And so if I were an IT investor, uh, I, and I have been, um, I would be looking at how the two worlds are intersecting more and more because I, IT, I actually, I used to write for you. I wrote for years. I, I wrote about how the IT people didn't get the bio people and the bio people didn't get the IT people. And I even did a, I did a column one time called uh, biologists are from Mars and engineers are from Venus and they have completely different philosophies. Um, the engineers build the machines they work on, you know, nature built the human body. And, but that's all changing too. That's another one of these inflection points. I, you know, if you, if you looked at my talks of the past several years on my writing, I, I was pretty, you know, pretty down on the fact that these two groups were going to talk to each other, but now they are. So mm-hmm. I, I would be, even at the level of these meetings, you're starting to see biomedicine move more into health IT meetings and more health IT move into bio meetings. And that's the way it should be because again, it's all about health data. It's how, it's how you diagnose. It's how you create new drugs. It's how you treat diseases. It's how you monitor diseases. You can't do that without a marriage of these two industries. So also, if you're coming to Boston or you live in Boston next week uh, on Monday, June 5th, I am throwing a party, a drinks night, uh, and you're invited and you can go to stephenwardell.eventbrite.com and look at the June 5th event and register there. Um, so uh, I'm co-hosting it with Shwen Gui, who was former head of innovation at Novartis and who has a tribe of people who call themselves health disruptors. And so this is the get together for the health disruptors and the investor talk uh, folks at Bio. Uh, Monday evening, um, you know, please join us. Um, so then the next uh, e- mini conference review is um, is HIMSS Europe is coming up. So people have mentioned and, and brought up HIMSS Europe. Should the U.S. digital health young company CEO go to HIMSS Europe? And my answer, to, and it's in Lisbon on June 7 to 9. And my answer to that is no, don't bother. Send your head of sales. And the reason is, is that um, half of all digital health sales are in the U.S. and you should and you should be focused on the U.S. and Europeans are moving their companies to the U.S. but no Americans are moving their companies to Europe uh, and so this is something this is something for your sales rep to go to but you but you as a U.S. digital health leader you shouldn't bother going. Hims is also focused on the hospital IT budget. This is this is the hospital CIO. To a lesser extent, the hospital CFO, head of radiology, some other part, head of nursing, some other areas that have budget that spend it on this. That's what HIMSS is focused on. So if you're not selling into the provider organization, then skip it entirely. So any thoughts on HIMSS Europe? Well, HIMSS represents what a lot of health IT companies, you know, it's their customers. Um, and it's not even always directly. I mean, you might be a consumer-based company. But the big money is still in selling to the providers. And you also, this is something that, again, I advise a lot of companies when I'm consulting. Um, they, they, they sort of ignore 
uh, wanting to keep happy the hospitals, the doctors, the medical community. You know, they want to b- build their product and get it out there and everybody's going to buy it. But you really do need to be aware that the first time that if, if you've got, like you know, I mentioned before, uh, an app that's monitoring your diabetes or any number of other healthcare apps, um, and you know, this doesn't include like personal training apps and things which are, which you're doing for yourself, and that is a true consumer market. But ultimately, a, a, if somebody wants to use your app to monitor a disease, they're going to ask their doctor, and you know, you, there's been a, that, that's been a huge gap and stopping point for a lot of younger companies. They don't understand that they, you know, getting at least, the FDA has made it much easier now to get a sort of sanction. You don't have to get approval. You just send, send what you're doing. They say, yes, there's nothing here that looks, you know, it looks good. Uh, even my Apple Watch here, you can now measure for atrial fibrillations because Apple finally, even a big company like Apple, it took them years to understand that to have something like this, you need to actually have the medical community believe it, and then they'll tell their, their patients to use it. And, you know, the FDA now sanctions the watch for measuring atrial fibrillations. And it's actually part of most cardiologists now use that. They when they send their patient home or they have a heart condition or something, they, they say, hey, check, send me your EKG off your watch, which is what you want. So anyway, so HIMSS is not, I, I agree in, in Europe, it, it, it's less formed over there. I mean, Europe, what's exciting in Europe, and it always has been, is the research. And they are, they are doing some pretty out front research on using healthcare data especially longitudinal studies like UK Biobank and some others that are trying to understand what the data is all about in using AI to predict, say, your risk for heart attack or other disease. But it hasn't, it doesn't manifest because the economies over there, the, the governmental structures make it more difficult to actually trans, you know, translate that research into products. So they tend to come over to the U.S. to do that. So you're absolutely right about that. So then Kate mentions in the chat um, an upcoming longevity conference. So I've, I've looked into this. I've not attended this yet. It's called the Mary Furlong Longevity Venture Summit Conference, June 14th to 15th in Berkeley. And I found a discount code for the conference, FOM20. Uh, and it, it looks outstanding. So I haven't, I haven't been to it. It looks outstanding. It looks like you've got... Uh, the small community of venture investors in longevity uh, and the many startups. So you'd think this would all be all about molecules, but actually it's, it's a lot more than that. It's helping elderly plan their estates. It's helping elderly be more mobile. It's helping. Um, so it's, it's um, longevity. It's also age tech uh, at this conference, venture investors, young company leaders. If you are in this space or aspire to be in this space, I think it's a fantastic um, uh, conference to go to. I think I, I won't be able to go to it, but but I, I I'm putting it on my list to to go to eventually. Um, so any any thoughts about uh, this conference? Um, I've heard of it. I don't know. I'd have to look and see who's speaking and all of that. I mean, you know, we'll get more into longevity, I guess, in a minute. But um, I mean, there are different strains of longevity, and there are I I you know I would say they're more aspirational side of. There's a more aspirational side of longevity where companies and, and people uh, who want to live a very long time or funding, 
you know, technologies that may or may not pan out, at least in the short term. Uh, and then there, but there's, there's a very serious strain too, that's really understanding that aging is the highest risk factor for most major diseases. And, and what that means is that as you age, you have a much higher risk of getting these diseases. So understanding the mechanics of aging are, is becoming a, a, a more mature science and it's, it's fascinating. And it's mostly understood in animals, you know, mice and other animals now. Um, you know, we can't really experiment on humans with this, but um, it, whether it's the genetic level or, you know, how cells age or die, um, you know, how they function, uh, there are lots of different elements to that, which are beginning to actually bear fruit in terms of at least understanding the processes. And I, we can talk about this again some more, but there's a strain of now of translating that into companies and products. It's fairly early stages, but, you know, they're treating like muscle myopathy. I mean, you know, as you get older, your muscles get, get you know, less supple, you know, um, there's an aging process that happens in the muscle cells, uh, in the processes of, of how the muscle cells work, and their company's working on especially severe cases of that. You know, that's, that will help improve people's lives and, you know, maybe or maybe not increase their health. Well, it'll increase their healthy lifespan, maybe not directly with their lifespan. But, you know, so there are a number of exciting developments um, in this world of trying to understand the mechanisms of aging. That's great. And Anne in the chat says, Marie's longevity conference is focusing on elderly longevity support um, as opposed to medical. Uh, that's great. So now moving on to um, industry reports, science news, published papers. Um, I'm going to call out, I'm very relieved to report to you guys that a study was published in the American Journal of Gastroenterology that found that ChatGPT failed the gastroenterology board exam. Um, so I think that uh, uh, doctors still have, um, you know, still have some legs here, maybe for another six months or so. Um, uh, David, any, any thoughts on that? <laughs> well, it, it's not surprising. I mean, I, I've been running around giving everybody wants an AI talk right now. And I did write a book about robots. And believe it or not, I basically predicted chat GPT. I mean, I'm certainly not alone in that. None of us thought it would happen this fast. Uh, but that was in the last book I wrote called Talking to Robots. But I, I, I'm developing a project, which will probably be a book called The Wave Theory. And The Wave Theory says, at least with technology and investments, things don't work in a linear fashion. You know, al almost everything in the, in the earth, in fact, works in waves. And certainly uh, every, every technology, every industry, and we are we are not in the final wave of ChatGPT. This is you know, maybe a medium. We're kind of in the middle of an AI wave. AI was characterized in the fifties. Uh, you know, it had a huge burst out of the starting gate in the fifties and sixties. It then had an, what they called a first AI winter, which was in the seventies. You couldn't get funding for your, your life. They made a few more developments. It didn't have another huge wave. Everybody got scared. There was a second AI winter. In other words, you know, whether it's the Internet or genetics, um, I don't think we're quite there yet where ChatGPT is ready to pass, you know, uh, you know, the, the medical, you know, medical exams and, and get an MD. And it's partly because there are just a lot of issues 
Yeah, we don't need to go deeply into this, but um, I mean, it's pulling in what's out there on the web and we all know what's out there on the web. You know, it's, it's a lot of junk as well as a lot of great stuff. And that still needs, and that, that actually, that's what scares me more than, you know, it's they're going to take over the world. They, they're just, you know, we still don't have capacity to, to be able to really filter out what's good and bad. And medicine is particularly difficult. You know, Watson, the famous IBM experiment failed because, yeah, they could look at billions of studies and, you know, apply that to a patient. But most of those studies had flaws and a lot of them weren't reproducible. And, you know, there was Watson couldn't differentiate between whereas a physician can look at a study and go, okay, that's real. That's not, you know, a human being, in other words, can still. So I, I'm not, I'm more worried about it just getting things wrong. So it doesn't surprise me that <laughs> ChatGPT, you know, failed that exam. So then another report came out in the past week. So CB Insights came out with its quarterly report on digital health fundraising. And it found that, uh, and this was about, we're in Q2 right now, but this report was about Q1. So in Q1, digital health funding globally held steady from the prior quarter at $3.4 billion in funding after having fallen significantly for four straight quarters before that. Um, mm -hmm. And some of the trends they noticed were fewer mega rounds, like 100 million or higher. Um, the two favored categories in the first quarter of the year were navigation tech and uh, care delivery. So care delivery is really interesting. Care delivery is kind of like, um, imagine imagine it's, it's the, your Uber in stealth mode and you have to figure out whether you're going to sell logistics software to logistics companies who are terrible at buying software. Or if you're going to ask the question, how hard is it to be a logistics company and beat all the other logistics companies? Uh, that's what, and so Uber decided it was easier to build their own logistics company powered by software than to sell software to the logistics companies and the taxi companies. Um, and so for digital health companies to go into care delivery, they're basically making the same call. They're saying it's easier for us to be provider organizations powered by tech than it is to build software and sell it to tech. And that was a favored category. And we're seeing that. We're seeing VCs throw up their hands at uh, digital health software companies. They're trying to sell software into terrible buyers. The hospital's a terrible buyer. Life science is a terrible buyer. Payers are a terrible buyer. Employers are a decent buyer. Um, uh, and they're saying, just go be a provider yourself. So um, the U.S. gets 68% of all global digital health funding. I haven't seen prior numbers, but that's that's probably what I would expect. Um, uh, and uh, quarter on quarter, M&A exits tripled uh, first quarter of this year as compared to the prior quarter. That's interesting. If that is sustained, and that, that would signal I am not hearing that workouts are that acquisitions and workouts are happening at a higher at a much higher level. Uh, but according to CB Insights, they are. That's great news if it's happening because it's from a low base and so it's up. If that is sustained, that will be a major trend of the year is companies in difficult valuation situations and difficult financing situations. Nevertheless, you know, the bigger consolidators are figuring out a way to buy up uh, the younger companies. So, the, the, so that would be that would be great news to have a, a more active acquisition market uh, would, would loosen up some of the stuck companies. Um, uh, and allow people to, to sort of move on. Um, so those are the insights from uh, CB Insights report. 
Um, David, do you have any thoughts on that? And also, did you have any, did you see any industry reports, scientific papers, you know, science news that, that you thought was worth talking about? Well, I think consolidation is long overdue, actually. You know, part of what I was saying earlier, you, you have too many companies chasing the same things. And, and you know, it, 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 I've written about, you, you know, basically we have a model, a VC funding model, shots on goal, that, you know, was designed for IT. And you can invest a fairly small amount of money, see if it works in a short period of time. And if it doesn't, then you pivot or you move on to something else. That doesn't work as well the closer you get to human biology. You know, it, it takes a lot longer to figure out. So that strategy, and, you know, I, I old enough to remember the, the dot-coms. I mean, it even started back then, but certainly in the early 2000s, Apple, Microsoft, Google, all the big companies made that mistake. They invested in tons of companies, and there's still, you know, investment groups out there that do that. Um, whereas you really should be looking for the quality as much as the quantity. But this is a moment in time that gives you an opportunity to kind of cherry pick out of, you know, the way too many companies doing the same thing and find the best ones, cherry pick the talent. I mean, when you have that, you know, that shots on goal mentality, kind of out of control, you tie up a lot of talent and capital, you know, with chase, too many people chasing the same thing. And so I would consider that. I agree with you. I think that would be a very positive development if more of that happens. I mean, a lot of people don't realize in the early VC days, you know, 60s and 70s, most companies were designed by VCs and by scientists and engineers. They, they, they were constructed. They didn't wait for somebody to walk through the door and, you know, have Monday afternoon presentations. Um, you know, it's first in my field, Amgen, Genentech, Chiron, all of the early biotech companies were actually intentionally built with the best people and they were properly funded. It was a much smaller amount of pool of money available, but you know, we know how successful those companies were. So it's something to think about if you are an investor and you have access to a lot of capital to, you know, don't just wait for something to walk through the door. Um, you know, build, build something that you think, um, you know, will 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 work with the right people and the right products, and you know all all of the other you know elements of the pipeline that you need to build a successful company. That's great. And did you have a, a nature paper that you wanted to? Um, that... um, to be honest with you, my next book, you know, is on the microbiome of the planet, which is a little off topic here. So I'm reading a lot of microbiology papers right now, which isn't entirely relevant to this conversation. But um, I'm also following, I've been consulting with a group called the Human Immunome Project. And that's that's an area that I would advise people to follow on all aspects, not certainly the biomedical side, but also the health IT side. And the group used to be called the Human Vaccine Initiative, which is what it's really known for. You know, it's known as, but they decided to expand out of the idea of vaccines. Um, but, you know, the, the immune system is obviously what we all just, you know, helped us get through the pandemic, or at least most of us, unfortunately, not everyone, but um, that's going to be a huge area. So I have been reading a lot about that. And I, I would look for that over the next maybe two to three years as being enormous area of growth and there's a lot that's known and there's a lot that's not known and 
I went to a meeting in La Jolla, California at the end of last year where the major immunologists around the world got together with some of the major um, IT people and including the team at DeepMind that, um, you know, solved one of the great problems um, in, in, you know, how, to, how the human body works, which is how proteins fold. I mean, your body is filled with, you know, you're basically made up of proteins, but they're very complex um, structures. And DeepMind in, you know, the Google company in London figured, out, figured this out. And so that whole team was there at this meeting as well. So this is a little probably upstream from where most people are right now in terms of investing, but I would really keep an eye out in that field because, uh, you know, there was a lot of money that was spent and is still being spent on understanding the human immunone system. So last before our main topic, uh, personal appearances. So I'll be at uh, Bio and the Digital Healthcare Innovation Summit in Boston this coming week, if anyone wants to meet up. Um, and David, any personal appearances? And maybe you could plug your your September book. Um, yeah, sure, sure. No, I I'm likely to be on stage at least introducing somebody or, or a session on Monday afternoon at Bio. Um, might even be doing another one um, later in the week. We're still organizing all of that. Um, I don't know. I'm giving a a talk at the Sun Sun Valley Forum in mid. June, which is kind of like the Aspen Ideas Festival. It's an up, up, well, it's more than up and coming. It's a pretty major uh, kind of thought leader meeting uh, in Sun Valley. Um, I've got, you know, other talks coming up uh, in the fall. And then, the, yeah, the book comes out on September 12th. And it's Harvard University Press in the U.S. and Little Brown uh, in the U.K. And the book is called The Voyages of Sorcerer 2. And um, explorations in the microbiome of Earth that connects all life. And my co-author is somebody that at least I hope some people have heard of, Craig Vinter, who sequenced the human genome back in you know the late 90s. Uh, he also created the first synthetic organism ever in a lab. Um, and he all and for about 15 years, he's a sailor. He outfitted his a hundred foot sailboat into a research vessel and went all over the world collecting microbes and it really reframed how we look at that part of you know, that invisible world. We can't see it, but it's everywhere. So it's an adventure story. It's got pirates. It's got, you know, all storms uh, that nearly, you know, I mean, nearly did the crew in. Um, sounds a little bit like Gilligan's Island there, but anyway, but um, so, but it's also about the science. And then at the end, it's a cautionary tale of, I think I said earlier, uh, actually, I think I was just talking to you and nobody was on yet, but there, there is um, a cautionary tale about how uh, human activity is affecting the microbiome, um, climate change, and it's affecting things like the oxygen that's created in the atmosphere. The vast majority of it's created by the microbiome of the ocean. And we're changing that. So that's what the book is about. So there'll be a bunch of appearances around that. I've got articles coming out of Vanity Fair and Scientific American and other magazines that will be in conjunction with that. That's great. So now uh, moving on to our, our main topic, uh, the future of longevity. Uh, so you've been following longevity for a long time. I guess the picture I'm going to ask, just a, a very general open-ended question is, is there a limit to the number of years a person can live? 
Is it 120? Is it 164? Uh, is there some limit to how long we can live? Well, let me ask you a question. I, I, I'll ask the you know the listeners here too um, to ask yourself this question because I can't. I don't have any way to have you vote. I usually when I give talks, I start out my longevity talk with asking how long people want to live, and you might have a number in mind, but to quantify it, I always I give four possible ages, uh, which is 80, which is basically the human lifespan in the West right now, the average average uh, life expectancy. Uh, 120, which is about as long as humans have lived as far as we know. Um, and 150, which would assume there would be some sort of technology that would allow you to live longer than humans live now, are forever. So you can you can think in your mind how you would vote 80, 120, 150, or forever. And when I used to, when I wrote the book 100, when I'm 164 and gave a TED talk, after that, I probably have asked about 50,000 people that question. You know, these are talks, shows, shows of hands. It's not exactly scientific. But, um, well, let me ask you, Stephen, how do you think people voted? How did you vote? So I, I, I would vote, I think, for the longest number, uh, provided that I stayed about as healthy as I am now. Okay. And by the way, I am not saying that that exists or not with this question. It's, you know, it's obviously a, uh, it's a thought experiment, but you're free to imagine that there might be a technology. You would have to be actually imagining there's a technology like that that would be available for you to live much past 120. Um, but so the, the numbers on that are interesting. The vast majority of people, about 65%, vote for 80. And when I was at Berkeley, we actually did some surveys on why people would voted the way they voted. And most people voted like that because they couldn't imagine a technology. They, they, they thought of living much past 80, they'd be old and frail, and who wants to do that? Uh, so they weren't really buying into the idea that we might have a technology to allow us. And also, obviously, if you're going to live, well, you know, even much past 65 or 70, you, you would li like to be more youthful. And some people want to, you know, want me to ask that question, give another question, uh, you know, have people vote again and say, OK, it'll be possible for you to be 25 as long as you want. How would that change people's vote? So, again, you can imagine which, what you might how you might vote for that. But so it's about 65 percent voted for 80, about 20 percent, uh, 120 um Let's make sure I get all the numbers right here. 85, about 10%, 150, and about 5% forever. I hope that equals 100%, <laughs> um, something like that. So not that many people forever, but there is a pretty adamant group of people, especially out where I used to live in Silicon Valley, who really do want to live forever. And I call them the forever people. And they tend to be, well, a lot of them are billionaires or would like to be billionaires. And they really just don't ever want to die. That the HBO series called Silicon Valley uh, made fun of of uh, of of those people, and I think that yes. the the field of longevity is, has still not recovered from that uh, that <laughs> panting that happened uh, in that series. Um, but uh, so you recently helped edit a Scientific American issue on the new science of wellness, and, and this was related to aging. Can you go over some of the theses that were discussed in in that issue? What 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 did it have to say that was new that you can tell us? 
Well, that issue, it was sort of generated by the work of, of a researcher named Lee Hood. And Lee is in his 80s now, but he, back in the 70s, was one of the inventors of the original genetic sequencing technology out of Caltech. Um, Lee's also you know, trained as a physician. And he's been on the cutting edge, really, of this whole idea of personalized medicine, precision medicine, um, using molecular testing to try to predict and prevent um, disease. And more recently, he's been working, well, he also had a very interesting company called Aerovol. And Aerovol, I, you know, in my, in my capacity as the human guinea pig to test all of these companies, uh, I, I, I went there and Aerovol as a product, it was very expensive, but you could actually uh, have a series of blood tests every three months and they would test you for hundreds of different biomarkers that are usually not tested, you know, by, by anyone really. Um, and it used some basic computer programs and you would get a report back on how healthy you are and some predictions on things. And it was pretty interesting. It was genetics. It was metabolomes or your metabol your metabolites, uh, proteins, microbiome. They even factored in like your Fitbit or Apple watch. Um, so Lee now, in the latest incarnation, Aerovol didn't quite make it financially because it was too expensive. Uh, for, but Lee's latest idea is something called phenomics. And phenomics is a term that incorporates all of the different tests you can take. Uh, molecular, you know, again, the same list of things, genetics, microbiome, Fitbits. Um, you know, basically, if you can measure it, it's on that list. Um, and... Lee is putting together a huge effort. He's trying to raise $10 billion. I don't know. We'll see if he accomplishes that. Uh, and test a million people over 10 years to see and test them regularly um, to see how, what their phenomic scores are to see, you know, if you can track how healthy people stay over that period of time in a very minute way. So, that's partly what this issue was about. And, and then beyond that, it was about where we are with the science of wellness, how you, you know, measure these different aspects of health and, you know, how you can apply that to predict or prevent uh, diseases in the future. Um, and so I, I want to jump in to, um, uh, to what is aging. So this is kind of a, some of our audience may be experts on this, most probably are not experts on this, but you hear people try to explain aging from a medical perspective and they may say, say things like, aging is um, losing the, the, um, the sort of the fidelity of the information in your genes, that's aging. Or alternately, aging is telomere attrition, or alternately, aging is a buildup of chronic inflammation. Um, you know, uh, and these are all hypotheses that have been pursued. It, it's, it's too simplistic and reductive to say it's any one of those things. But these are all hypotheses that have been, that have been pursued over time. And there's even a, a framework called the 12 Hallmarks of Aging, some of which are what I just mentioned. Um, can you go into just uh, some, so, you know, where have we been finding that these explain aging and that we can do something about it uh, in these hallmarks of aging. 
Well, I think you sort of characterized the, the you know, the major categories. Um, I mean, you know, obviously, as we age, uh, things begin to fall apart. I mean, we're, we're, we're designed to be old enough to reproduce our DNA. DNA likes to stay alive. It likes to be passed down. Uh, it's been around for about 4 billion years. It's gotten pretty good at having vessels like us to continue it. And once we, you know, once we kind of go past the reproductive age, the body is not any used to our DNA anymore. So we, things start, you know, start falling apart, but there, there are a lot of interesting factors there. Uh, that play into this. Like I come from actually a very long-lived family. Most of my family lives into their 90s, a few over 100. Um, I'm, I'm actually myself over 100 right now. No, I'm kidding. But um, I, um, you know, other, other people age faster. Uh, there's a lot of environmental factors that play in, um, you know, kind of environment you've been exposed to. There's so many factors around aging. But, you know, again, collecting this data helps a lot with this, but also understanding these mechanisms and, you know, like the cells are the are the workhorse of the body and they replicate over and over and over again. And, you know, over time, you know, there are going to be errors, there are going to be mistakes, um, things like, um, you know, radiation, uh, which is out there. I mean, we're protected on earth mostly from radiation, but there's a slow accumulation of that. Um, and you know, it's one of the problems with being in outer space because you're not protected from radiation. Cells don't do very well in a radioactive environment. Um, there's, you know, what we eat, all, all of those things begin to play on, um, you know, cells, on other other functions, I mentioned myopathy before. That's actually a big one, especially when it affects major muscles like the heart. Um, and so, the exciting thing is, though, we are beginning to understand some of these processes better. And there are some, you know, areas of science where therapies are just beginning. But for instance, stem cell therapies. Um, we're just getting the first approvals from the FDA for, you know, a couple of conditions. Uh, there'll probably be more of that. It's been, you know, I'd mentioned the wave theory earlier. Gene therapy has been traveling in waves for about 30 years, and it's mostly failed in the past. It's still not quite there, but it's getting closer and closer. And this is where you actually use a person's own cell, you know, own, own uh, stem cells to create new tissue that can replace damaged tissue. Um, in my book, one, you know, when I'm 164, I talk about um, four areas actually that can help you increase healthy lifespan. And by the way, Kate, I totally agree with you uh, in the chat about living longer isn't, isn't necessarily a goal. It's being living longer, more healthy. So the, the first area of these four that I get into in the book is Believe it or not, it's low tech. It's eating well, exercising, all of those other things. And, you know, we, we can use health IT like apps and things to help us manage all of that. But, um, you know, that's kind of a, a no brainer. But a lot of people forget that when they get all excited about the technologies. And in fact, the number one factor for why we've doubled lifespan in the last hundred years is, is good, better nutrition and good hygiene. And good hygiene includes, you know, eliminating a lot of infectious diseases that were there because we didn't have good hygiene. Uh, 
public health, clean water, vaccines, um, you know, early nutrition, just very, very basic things. Yeah. And even though there's, you know, there's now an anti-fat pill, everybody is hoping to have a pill that will increase lifespan. Um, I'm pretty skeptical of things like that, having any kind of real legs in terms of really making you healthier for a longer period of time. I mean, the reality is we have to work at it and we all know that, um, you know, I wish it wasn't so. I, I mean, I love eating chocolate and lots of other things that aren't great for me sometimes, at least in quantity. So that's the first one. The second one is genetics. And there's a lot of exciting work, and there has been for several years, around the idea that there may be some genetic pathways that can potentially slow aging. It, they exist in, in animals. Uh, simpler, the organism, like um, there's, there's a worm called C. elegans that has about a 1,000 genes. And there's one gene that if you suppress it, they, these worms can live up to 10 times longer than their natural lifespan. And that's been really seductive to a lot of people in the longevity field because we do, you know, believe it or not, we have some what they call homogalous or we have we have a more highly evolved version of, of some of the systems that are in these simpler organisms. But, it, it, you know, people have tried in humans. It, it, it doesn't appear to really work very well. It works to, to, in a very small way in mice. Um, I can get more into that, but that's, so there may be some genetics understanding why, like my family lives longer than some others. That, that's still an area that's being studied. The, the third area is stem cells and regenerative technologies. And that's, you know, they're growing partial organs in Petri dishes now, like brainoids, like parts of brains, parts of hearts. Um, I myself have had my own cells turn back into embryonic-like cells, and they've grown heart cells that come that are genetically identical to my heart cells. Is, is the idea there that, you're, that an, an organ of your body is failing, and so you go and get a replacement organ, and it's compatible because it came from, it originally came you. from you? Yeah. 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 And that's not available. You know, you, if somebody tells you they have that, they don't. Um, so don't, don't, don't run off and order that on Amazon, but um, they're, you know, in mice anyway, they perfected heart patches, you know, where there's damage in the heart, like from a heart attack. Um, you can replace the damaged part of the heart potentially with, um, with healthier cells from your, you know, from your own DNA. Um, that's still really in the future. Um, there are, you know, you hear about these stem cells where you can get, you know, have stem cells removed from part of your body and injected in your knee or something like that. That's not what I'm talking about. Um, that's still a little questionable whether how, how much that works. So anyway, regenerative. And then the final one is something we haven't talked a lot about, uh, which is bionics. And I, weirdly enough, I'm going to stand up here. I congenitally have had some problems with my hips, and I have two artificial hips. And I'm relatively young to have that, but thank God that exists. So I consider myself bionic. And, you know, people have pacemakers. Uh, we're getting more and more, you know, there's deep brain implants for certain diseases. Um, you know, again, this is way off in the future, um, you know, for any kind of significant change. You also have uh, prosthetics now that at least um, some of the engineers I know that make them, a couple of them use them, uh, like Hugh Hare at, at MIT Media Lab, 
he considers himself to be an enhanced human because he lost his lower legs and he builds these things. And the prosthetics that he wears, he thinks, make him actually better than people who have flesh and blood legs. So anyway, those are the four areas that, you know, where a lot of these developments will happen. And there are others too, but that's, I think, where, you know, we're going to see the most uh, change. So there's a very, uh, so, so thank you. Uh, and by the way, for our audience, I see we had a couple questions and I want to get to those. And for our audience also, um, I want to invite you to ask questions at this juncture of, of David and me. Um, there's a, uh, a very um, unappetizing story from the past about longevity, which is that it's very hard to get good, robust data about anything that truly ex expand, extends lifespan. Um, but there are two that keep popping up. And one of them is caloric restriction, so starving yourself. Um, and the other one is for men, it is castration. And men tend to live less than women. And if you if you have castration, the men live longer until they get closer to the lifespan of women. And I'm just, I'm holding out for the pill um, that, <laughs> that does it for you. You don't want to go with castration? That's <laughs> Not one of those sounds, sounds great to me. Um, uh, but, uh, and then Kate asked the question, um, anything interesting happening on the CRISPR front, CRISPR and longevity? Yeah. And, and by the way, caloric restriction in humans hasn't, it's almost impossible to measure because we're, we're so long lived. Like, you know, what causes you to live longer or not? It's, it's, and I know people that have tried that. And I remember I was giving a talk on longevity actually at Harvard and somebody stood up in the back who really looked like they were almost dead. They were super thin, like kind of papery skin. And I had just mentioned that caloric restriction probably wasn't fun or a good idea. And this person got up and challenged me because they were the head of the caloric restrictions, some, some organization. And he said, look at me, I'm fine. And we're all looking at him going, mm, I don't know. <laughs> so you could starve yourself your whole life. You know, it may or may not work, but um, I don't want to even go there with castration. I'm not sure there's any data on that, but, but um, I, Certainly haven't seen anything, but you know, yeah, I, I should have mentioned when I was talking about genetics before. That includes synthetic biology, and you know, which is mostly at the genetic level, uh, or at least much of it is, and that includes CRISPR, you know, gene editing, um, and you know, again, with that wave theory, that idea that these things come in waves. When CRISPR came out in 2012, out of nowhere, um, everybody went gaga and tons of, you know, lots of companies were started. Everybody was investing money. It, those early, you know, I would never invest in a new technology, especially in biotech, you know, when it first comes out, because it almost never works. Um, it, it worked dramatically in animals and a lot of, you know, you know, a lot of cell, cell based technologies or in cells, but it's still, you know, we're slowly getting there. It's certainly speeding up the idea of using, and when I say gene therapy or gene editing, I, I think everybody here knows what that means. It means that you can more easily edit out or edit in um, a mutation that's causing a, a disease. And in the you know, future, you could even enhance somebody potentially, you know, make them stronger or, or something else, you know, at the genetic level. This is all very fraught right now. I mean, there's still... CRISPR is getting better and better all the time, but you still get off-target problems, you know, where you target one part of the, your genome and something else un, unexpected. It also affects other 
parts of the genome. Um, but synthetic biology is a big deal. It's how some drugs are being developed now, um, and that will continue, you know, to pan out. I also no- noticed that Kate, who had to leave, but she did mention the ovaries, and there is, you know, again, there, there are these areas that are really getting exciting right now. And I have a friend, Daisy Robinson, who started a, a company called Aviva. And it's what's called a pipette a company. of a, The parent company is called Cambrian Biopharma. And Cambrian, I would take a peek at that because um, James Payer runs it. He was a, he had a longevity fund. But he's going after what I would consider pretty solid anti-aging science with his 20 or so companies that they're fostering. And Daisy's company, Oviva, is taking, believe it or not, even though half of humanity has ovaries and we all come from them, um, it's a very neglected organ. And it ages faster in a woman than the rest of their body. And that's one of the reasons that women go through menopause. And Daisy and uh, a pedigree of amazing women scientists at Harvard. It's about three generations of science. She's a, a younger researcher out of Harvard, have come up with some very interesting ideas about potentially slowing the process of menopause, which would extend the reproductive years of women and slowing that aging process uh, in the ovaries. So I I want to move on to a topic of what I'll call digital tech in longevity and ask you, what have you seen in this area? So if I were to summarize with digital tech, first there is the raw technology itself and then what it can be used for. So here we're not necessarily talking about new molecules, which is, I'd say that's that's 90% of longevity is new molecules, but the digital side. So we're talking about new sensors, more sensors, cheaper sensors. And these sensors, um, we are sort of instrumenting ourselves and our our lives, our bodies um, with these sensors. And then these sensors generate data, more data, more continuous data, different kinds of data. And these sensors could include standard diagnostic tests, wet diagnostic tests. Um, And then this data, it's now easier than ever to store this data and then analyze it with software that could include with AI software, among other things. And together, what we get is we get a basis for, you could say, healthy living. We can, we can see if there's areas where we're, maybe our blood pressure is too high and we weren't noticing it, for example. And so we can get to a, a better blood pressure um, to optimizing, so healthy living and optimizing ourselves. And then the next step is that we're using this to get toward prevention of disease. We can detect cancer early. We can detect and head off diabetes, perhaps. Um, And then the next level is uh, diagnosis. When we are hit with that illness that could shorten our lives, we can diagnose um, either a problem with wellness or a problem with a serious disease. And then the next level is treatment and the digital it may not be able to treat, but it may be part of the treatment. It's continuous monitoring during a treatment. You took a drug. Did you respond to the drug? Uh, did you take the drug? Did you respond to the drug? Did you need a new drug? Um, uh, and then just general condition management, which is the day-to-day, you know, uh, you know, you may be managing your diabetes well and, and, and feeling terrible. 
but maybe there's a way to feel a little better while you're managing your diabetes better, for example. So that, that, that's the role I see digital technology playing in what it is and the role it plays in longevity. Um, is that, is that what you, and you're, you're the original quantified man, uh, the, uh, 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 or measured man, quantified self, whatever, whatever it is. Experimental um, man, but, yeah. I, I was also involved with quantified self movement. So, yeah. Uh, is, is that, is, you know, is that what this means, what digital means for longevity is, are there areas I'm missing? Is there, you know, can, can you, can you, and is this, are, are we seeing this come to fulfillment? Are there obstacles in the way of this? Um, well, like I said, I mean, we're seeing finally, I call it the fusion of health IT and biomedicine. And I even had a, you know, a, a series of meetings. We did about 30 of them all over the world called Arc Fusion. And Arc was a story arc and Fusion was trying to get these three communities together. And there was a time when they didn't play together in the same playground, but they are now. And so, and honestly, to move forward in any kind of significant way with certainly predictive and preventive medicine, we have to have all three. And we haven't talked a lot about, there. there is a division, at least in my mind, between even health and IT. I mean, IT is obviously the, you know, the engineering, uh, the software, the hardware you use, but health in itself is a separate entity that IT can be used to measure as well as the, on the biomedical side. So, um, and there even is an economic divide. Obviously you have the IT business, you have the biomedical business, which are multi-trillion dollar businesses, but even health where people pay for going to the gym, for a diet, for, you know, a Fitbit watch or whatever, um, that's, over a trillion dollars now that people are spending out of their own pocket, which should give everyone out there who's working in health IT, if you combine even those two areas, that's a lot of money that people are spending, you know, so that gives you some macro hope about your, your product you're developing. But, um, you know, we, we're getting better and better. I mean, the sensors are still, depends on really what you mean. I mean, external sensors you know, EEGs to measure the brain, EKGs to measure the heart. Those have been around for a while, but they're getting more and more sophisticated. Uh, there are a lot of brain measurement devices that are on the outside of your head. Um, you know, there's photonics now where you can put your finger and light, light is shine, you know, shown through and um, it can measure, it can pick up some of the, um, you know, the stuff that's in your blood and your finger, um, you know, these external sensors and measurements are getting better and better. Even a glucose monitor, you know, is even though it's penetrating your skin slightly, um, that's pretty much an external. Um, we're still working on getting um, internal sensors, which are still in the kind of early phases, um, partly because the inside of a body is not a very, it's not very conducive to the materials used by engineers. You know, blood is very caustic, but even, there's some interesting sensor technologies being experimented with there as well, but pulling things out of the body, like through your blood or, you know, other bodily fluids is getting very exciting and being able to, you know, differentiate. And this is where I'll take a little issue with what you say about molecules, because the molecules are what you're measuring, um, you know, when you do a blood test and, 
I I was working with a company, if you want to read a MIT tech review story I did in 2017 called AI and Health. And I was working, I, the story is mostly about a company uh, called Patients Like Me, which is based in the States, but was working at the time with a Chinese company. And I was involved with about 30 people being tested every few days. I got a blood draw and they were literally spending $30,000 per blood draw to test everything you could possibly think of in a, you know, in my case, a healthy person's blood. And so I had this massive amount of data that was collected and they also had me do diets. So they took my blood. I, I ate a vegan diet for a week and they tested me twice during the week. And then one day a weekend, I switched to a week long paleo diet. So two opposite extremes of, and they measured every, you know, every which way. And it was fascinating to see even for a healthy person, all the changes that happen and all these measurements. And that's, you know, almost a one-off as 30 people. Um, But eventually I think we will all be tested every which way, you know, wearables and your clothes and your shoes. And we'll probably be largely even unaware that, you know, we're being tested. Um, and even these blood draws can, you know, they're getting closer and closer to where you you could have that fairly unobtrusive. Um, and we'll just be monitored. And, you know, when something is, is out of whack a little bit, well, you know, we'll be informed. Our doctor will be informed. I mean, that's kind of the dream of personalized uh, predictive preventive medicine. And the idea there is right now we have a sick care system. We, we, you, know, you, you wait until you're sick, then the medical establishment engages. And part of the health movement and the health IT movement is we like being healthy and we want to stay healthy. And these technologies, ways to measure, to monitor, hopefully predict and prevent will keep us healthy. So we don't have to go into that sick care system. But I will hastily add that it's not just technology and policy and desire that are sort of still causing resistance. You asked me about that. There is resistance in, you know, traditional medicine, you know, this five, almost $6 trillion system that we have, because it is a sick care system. The whole financial structure is based on paying you know, getting payments for treating people when they're sick. They don't get paid to keep people well. And we don't have to get heavily into that, but you have to be aware of that if, if you're starting companies on this. It's the, the big reimbursements aren't always there. They're, they are sometimes. They're, there's some healthcare systems in the country like Kaiser in California and other states, uh, Geisinger in Pennsylvania. Um, even the NIH is experimenting with this because they actually are a hospital you know, a series of hospitals as well as research center. Um, you know, how, how could we have systems that reward? Well, how do you reward the system for keeping somebody healthy? And so, and, and three companies that I like to track and follow uh, that are looking at longevity and health optimization for, from a digital perspective, and they're not molecular drug companies. Um, so one of them is, is Inside Tracker. Inside Tracker, it uses Science Pioneer by Gil Blander. Um, and uh, that is about, that, that, that's really about athletes who measure themselves trying to achieve the best level of optimization in their sport. 
um, and, it, and it uses regular blood tests. Um, then there's also Tally Health. Tally Health uh, is a company following, and I think uh, partly sponsored by David Sinclair and his lab uh, yeah. uh, and the longevity work he's doing. And they're trying to apply that to people in their daily lives. And that's clearly about longevity as opposed to optimization of your body within a sport. Um, and then interestingly, of all things, there's now an, a new one called Life Force, a company sponsored by Anthony Robbins. So we've got Anthony Robbins. So he, he's, he's jumped in the pool, uh, apparently. Um, and uh, so th those are three intriguing companies if our audience is interested in actually applying this stuff in their in their real life uh, to to look at those companies. Um, and uh, so you may be we're, we're approaching the, the 90 minute mark. Um, uh, what is and for our audience, you have the last chance to ask any questions. Um, so what is the right stack that we should be thinking of uh, in terms of you know, uh, how much sleep should we get? Um, how much cardio exercise should we get? Any other kind of exercise, any kind of diet or calories, um, any other lifestyle, any supplement uh, regime met or prescription drug regime like metformin or something. And any thoughts on, um, uh, you know, what, what is the right healthy living stack we should be uh, aspiring to in order to, um, in order to live longer? Well, like I said earlier, um, unfortunately, there isn't really a pill to increase healthy lifespan at the moment. Uh, even, um, you know, metformin, met, if you, metformin is a disease that diabetics take, um, you know, that, that it helped them with their disease, but it also is some evidence anyway that it slows the process of aging in some cells. It hasn't, there've been some trials recently. There's only been small trials to actually see if it really does extend lifespan. And some recent trials have suggested that it might be a, a bit of a wash. I mean, it's not unhealthy to take them, but um, there's some people who swear by it. Again, the human organism is so complicated and the reasons that we age and die are, are so varied uh, and, you know, multiple reasons. It Unless you have something that clearly demonstrates like years longer in lifespan, uh, it's it's hard to prove. Um, but you know, again, you know, the, I guess the good and the bad news is, um, you know, you just you have to take care of yourself. Um, you know, eat right. Um, I mean, I, I like a glass of wine or two, but you know, don't don't drink bottles of wine in the sitting. Um, that, that is actually a way to rapidly age. Uh, you know, smoking is bad. All of those things that we already know about. Um, but, you know, I, I do find it fascinating. There does seem to be, at the same time, that obesity is out of control. And I, we should probably hastily add in a conversation about longevity that, you know, life expectancy in the U.S. is actually going down right now for the first time in history. It's, it's gone down by about two to three years on and partly that was the pandemic, uh, and partly it's actually addiction and, and deaths from addic you know, drug addiction. But it's also from obesity and uh, you know, living in a healthy way. Um, but, you know, eat right, all of that. Um, some of these other technologies may come online. If you, if you can keep yourself healthy long enough, that's one of the strategies. People want to live a long time. You know, keep yourself healthy in traditional ways, 
so you live long enough that some of these uh, more exotic fixes might be available. Yeah, then let, let me add all, also, by the way, we have uh, Dave uh, Sikowski uh, of Wellist on the call, and they have uh, uh, an app uh, that collects all of your wellness fitness data and gives you an AI coach uh, for managing whole body wellness. So we should throw that in there as well. Check out their website uh, on wellness.com uh, as well uh, for, for people who are interested in, in, um, in managing their, their wellness as well. So, um, great. So, um, I, I think that's, uh, I think that, that that's it for our call. Um, so any, any last, so thank you very much, uh, David for coming on the call and any last thoughts for us. Um, I would say we haven't talked at all about, um, if we do, if we act part of what my book back 10 years ago when I'm 164 was about was what happens if we actually succeed at extending lifespan. And I'll just you know, let you look up the book when I'm 164. It's a TED book on, on Amazon. It's an ebook. But if even if, if we succeed, we still have the issue of what do we do with that extra time? You know, uh, the idea of having meaning and purpose in life is still going to be as important if we live 200 years as it is living what we live now. So I, I kind of close with that, that, you know, we can talk about all these technologies and extending life, which sounds great and, you know, could be great. Um, but we also have to think about some other aspects of what it is to be human. I think we'll speed watch our favorite HBO series is if we, if we ever live to be 164, we'll be the, exactly. the answer to that. Well, somebody, <laughs> you know, if you read way, I don't mean to prolong this, but there's some amazing amount of time that's spent because Netflix now has that skip intro button you can press, or they've had that for a while. It's literally people's lives. Have, I mean, their lives haven't been extended, but their lives when they weren't having to watch the intro to their favorite show every time is added more minutes to, for them to do other things. I think that's sort of funny. Okay, well, thank you. Okay. So you've been listening to Digital Health Investor Talk with your host, Stephen Wardell, and thanks to our guest, David Ewing Duncan. You'll find a list of upcoming Investor Talk shows at stephenwardell.eventbrite.com. You can also follow me on Twitter at Stephen Wardell. Uh, to get notice of upcoming Investor Talks, you can sign up for the mailing list at stephenwardell.eventbrite.com. I'll see you next time, next week, Thursday um, of next week for our show with uh, Ryan Steller, the future of remote monitoring codes. Ryan is the founder and CEO of Standard Care. Um, you can follow Ryan on Twitter at Ryan Steller. Um, uh, and that's it. Uh, we'll see you next week, and I'll see you at the drinks night on Monday as well. Thank you. Okay. Thank you, Stephen. Thanks, everybody. Yeah, bye bye. Bye bye.